If you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. And this is a big day uh, because we have been in the Gospel of John off and on for three years now. And short of something bad happening to me during the service, we will finish the Gospel of John today. Okay, so this is exciting. I'm excited to jump in. We're going to do something a little bit different today. I want to read the first two verses of what we're going to look at and the last two verses of what we're going to look at this morning as a way of setting things up. Okay, just look at John chapter 20 with me very quickly, verse 30, as we kind of set the stage for our passage this morning. John chapter 20, verse 30 says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Skip to the very end of the book, chapter 21, verses 24 and 25. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. The Gospel of John uh, is told by us to have an intention and a purpose. John tells us that he is an eyewitness of the things he's recorded. These verses tell us that John is not just an eyewitness, he's selectively pulled in some of the things that he witnessed, not all of them, some of them to make a point. So picture a movie director that has an entire sequence of scenes of somebody's life, or a story, or a book. And what movie producers do, directors do, right? They pull different scenes from this story or chronology in order to put forward a film that makes a point or that tries to engage in some kind of conversation with its viewers. What you and I need to recognize is the Gospel of John is an inspired pulling together of specific, true, historical accounts that don't just give us a chronology. They give us a theology that he wants us to see. The theology that John wants us to get from the accounts that he puts together is what what we find in verse 31. Look at your Bibles. These are written... So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The reason John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, selects the accounts that he does, the reason he puts them in the order that he does, is to evoke a response from you and me. And the response that John is calling for is faith or trust that Jesus is the Christ. Now, you'll remember that Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title for Jesus that means anointed one or Messiah. 
And what John is telling us is that he wants us to trust from what he's written that Jesus is the one the Old Testament totally and completely has been pointing to. This is why, in previous accounts, John has compared Jesus to the Passover lamb. Jesus is the one who's come to take the penalty that you and I should have received for our sins. Jesus takes it on himself, dies on the cross in our place, and rises again. And John says, I've been telling you all of this because I want you to trust in this Jesus. Now, here's what I really want to spend the majority of our time talking about this morning. John says that the response he wants is trust in Christ, but notice the result in your Bibles. Verse 31 again, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says the result of someone trusting Christ is that it establishes this connection with Jesus so that through faith we are given life. Now, most of the time, when we think about this life, we think about eternal life, life with Christ in his presence in heaven forever. But what I want to focus on and what I want to draw your attention to this morning is that Jesus in this life doesn't just secure and transform our future. What the passage is going to show us as John concludes is that Jesus also transforms our past and our present. I want to show you from God's word this morning how Jesus transforms your present and how he powerfully transforms your past. Would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word in John chapter 21, verse 1 and following. John chapter 21, verse 1, we read these words. After this... Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. 
And although there were, were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you, wherever you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? Verse 21. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the word of the Lord. This is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us. Would you pray with me, church? God, as we press into your word this morning, we pray that your spirit would speak to our hearts. Jesus, we pray that you would remove distraction. You would open our eyes and we would see this and hear from you. Lord, as we hear from your word this morning, would you help us not just be hearers of your word, but would you help us be doers of your word as well? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. You can divide this passage into two scenes. In the first scene of this account, we find the disciples fishing. Now, I have it on good authority that the fish at the lake are biting right now. Don't know if that's corresponding to your experience fishing right now at Lake of the Ozarks, but that's the word on the street. So this will relate to many of us. After the disciples have heard from Jesus, he's come and revealed himself to them. They decide to return to their home, to Nazareth, to the north in this area, and they decide to go fishing. There's about seven of them in the boat here. It was common for them to fish at night because after fishing at night and after catching some fish, they would go directly to the market in the morning and sell their fish. These are experienced, skilled fishermen who in this case actually end up catching nothing all night. About morning, as the sun is just beginning to peak over the hills of Nazareth, they notice a person on the seashore. 
they begin to talk to this person from their boat. He asks if they've caught anything. They say no. And from the seashore, this person, this man yells, cast your nets on the other side, on the right side of the boat, and see what happens. These seven disciples think, what have we got to lose? They take their nets, they throw them on the other side of the ship, and what the Bible tells us is their nets become so full, they can hardly pull them up. And about that time, John, one of Jesus' disciples, realizes this is not just any person. This is Jesus. And as he looks at Peter to tell him this, before, Peter, before he can even get the words out of his mouth, Peter's put his clothes back on, and he's hurled himself into the water. You gotta love Peter. I mean, Peter makes a lot of mistakes, but he just throws himself after Jesus. The picture that Shelley and I have in our minds when we read this is, is a scene from the movie Forrest Gump. How many of you have seen Forrest Gump? You remember when Forrest gets the, the shrimp boat and he's the, the shrimp boat captain and Lieutenant Dan shows up and uh, he sees Lieutenant Dan and he waves and with no care or consideration for his boat or his well-being, while his boat is moving, he hurls himself into the water to swim. You've got to watch that movie this afternoon now so you can get this in your mind. He's talking to Lieutenant Dan about that time. His, his boat, remember, crashes into the dock, and he's like, that's my boat. Um, I just, I love that scene of the movie because when I see Peter, and Shelly and I were talking about this last night, when we see him, it's just this reckless abandonment with which he throws himself after Jesus. Interestingly enough, in the original language, the same word that John uses to describe casting the nets in the water is the exact same word he uses to describe Peter throwing himself in the water. What we're meant to see is that Peter is, is hurling himself. He's leaving behind, again, this life of fishing to follow and submit to Jesus. Peter makes his way to the shore. The disciples come in tow with the fish. They get the fish together, and Jesus has breakfast ready to go. He feeds them, and they spend some time together. Now, here's the question. Why is Jesus doing this, and why is John telling us this as he finishes his gospel? Remember, John has ordered the accounts that he's given very strategically in his gospel. There's a purpose for this. Here's what I believe the purpose is for this particular account at this particular moment. I believe he's wanting us to see that Jesus is empowering his disciples to be fishers of men. I believe the reason that John is showing us about this fishing and what's going on here is that Jesus is showing us that he's, or John's showing us that Jesus is empowering his disciples to be not fishers of fish, but they have a great harvest that they're to glean from the ministry that he's called them to. There's a couple things in the story that lead me to conclude that. One of the things that we know is that Jesus often used the idea of fishing to describe what the disciples were supposed to be doing. Jesus and other places talk about leading them to be fishers of men. The other thing about this particular story that's interesting is that John makes it very clear that the disciples catch nothing until who shows up. 
It's only until Jesus arrives that they begin to receive and catch a harvest. What I believe John is showing us as he concludes his book is he is, in a sense, giving his own version of the Great Commission to you and I because every disciple from the New Testament forward is also to be about making other disciples. And here's the way I would say it. What I believe John is showing us is that Jesus transforms our present by empowering us to share him with the world. What I believe John's showing us is that Jesus changes not just our future destination, but the life he offers us is a life of empowerment to make him known to a lost and dying world. Another way of saying it is this. Jesus is not just the message we share. Jesus is also the means and the power by which we share it. The victory that Jesus has won for us is meant to propel us to go to a lost and dying world. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's do a show of hands here. How many Kansas City Royal fans do we have in here? Raise your hands high. Oh, there were more in the first service. More that would admit it. Okay, when I moved here four years ago, I couldn't find a Royals fan within 100 miles of this place. And then about two years ago, something started to happen. Hats were worn. T-shirts were displayed. Bumper stickers were put out. Flags on people's cars. Facebook posts where you could go royal with your Facebook posts. All of these things began to happen. Does anybody know why this happened? They began to win. Imagine that. They even, Gavin was going to tell me, they even won the World Series, right? And all of the sudden, there were all these Royal fans. And the Cardinal fans are like, we've been here forever. These guys are fair-weather people. I know there are some of you that are diehard Royals fans, but you've got to admit, your fan base grew exponentially when the team started winning. Now, why is that? That's because there's something about winning that solves a lot of your problems. There's something about winning that propels a movement. And what I want you to know is what Jesus is saying is that his victory in his death and his glorious resurrection is meant to propel us as the church to communicate that. And what's underneath what I'm saying, what's the the kind of theological foundation that makes sense of this, is that God's grace is not just forgiveness. God's grace is also a power that he unleashes in our lives. God's grace is a power that begins to change us from the inside out. And here's what this is supposed to look like. When God's grace begins to change us, God's grace enables us to serve other people in our lives sacrificially and sustainably. What happens when God's grace gets a hold of me and really begins to change me, that power takes hold as I begin to serve and invest in others sacrificially. That means expecting nothing in return. But I also don't do that just as a weekend project 
or something I do just after I hear a sermon about it, but I do it sustainably as a lifestyle. I begin to serve people. I don't know if you've found this to be the case, but I have discovered that some of the hardest people to serve are the people I'm closest to. Some of the most challenging people to serve sometimes are our family members. Now, you're doing the same thing the first service people did. You're looking very piously at me right now. But deep down, you know I'm right. If you have little kids, if you're in close quarters with your family over long periods of time, it can be challenging to love people that we are so close to at times. It can be challenging to love people we find difficult. Why is it that God calls us to this kind of sacrificial, sustainable love? How is it that we can do that? Here's the answer. This is an illustration Tim Keller uses. He's a pastor in New York that kind of helps me get my mind around what God calls us to. He talks about this kind of love in terms of a philanthropist. Uh, A philanthropist, as you know, is someone who has access to or owns a significant amount of resources— And as a philanthropist, their mission in life is to give those to other people, expecting nothing in return, right? So they give to nonprofits, they give to charities. This is not Shark Tank where they're grilling people about rates of return and what they're going to get back. It's totally a gift. And Keller says this, the point of a philanthropist is because they have all these resources, it enables them to give that way. But... If the resources a philanthropist has are ever threatened or ever begin to diminish, they will quickly stop investing in the way that they have been. Why? Because when they begin to operate at a deficit, when they begin to operate where they don't have the access to the resources they previously had, they can't sustainably give that away. They'll run out of money. And Keller's point is this, in marriage, in relationships, in investing sacrificially, it's the same way. When we invest based on the treasures and the glories and the unfathomable depths of what God's grace has done for us, we can love other people sacrificially and sustainably. But when we try to operate out of our own ability, out of our own strength, when we try to find other paths to fuel our investment in others, we will always find those wells to run dry. Now here's why this is so important. Many of us are trying to fill our hole in our hearts that's meant for Jesus with other things. We're running after power. We're running after significance in our community. We're running after wealth or position. And when we run after those things, what we're saying about those things that we're running after is we think those things are going to satisfy us. Here's the problem with that. When we run after things other than Jesus as our most significant endeavor, we cut ourselves off from the endowment and richness of God's grace. Here's how you and I consistently tap in to the love that God has shown us. We believe that Jesus is better. The way that I consistently connect myself to the richness of God's grace is believing and trusting that Jesus is better than anything I would ever give myself to. 
because when I trust and convince myself and repetitively remind myself that Jesus is better, it connects me to a source of life and love that is endless. In our life group this morning, we were talking about serving our families even when we're tired. And one of the things that we discussed was the reality is oftentimes when our families, especially for those of us that have little ones, when they need us the most is when we're most exhausted. Can I get an amen out there? Yeah, it's when we're most tired, right? And what we talked about in our group this morning is oftentimes what we have to recognize is our expectation that life is going to be comfortable and easy and that I'm going to serve people as long as it's comfortable and easy is probably something we got to get rid of. What we've got to replace it with is the reality that I'm called to serve my spouse, my children, my parents, even when I'm exhausted. Now, the only way you and I will do that is if there's a source of love that we're tapping into that is endless. If it's just because you like your spouse or you like your kids or you like your mom and dad, I don't know if you found this to be the case, we don't always like each other. And so what happens if you're not particularly happy with your screaming baby who's up at three in the morning? What happens when your mom and dad make a decision that you don't particularly care for? What happens when your spouse says something that kind of hurts your feelings or or acts a particular way that you don't care for? Are we just going to withhold serving them and loving them? The only way we do that is by in that moment going, Jesus, you got to help me. I'm going to believe that you're better and that I don't have to have what I think I need, or I don't have to have a response from somebody that I think I should get in order to love them and serve them. So let me ask you, how are you doing serving others as you believe Jesus is better? How are you doing trusting that Jesus will take care of you even when you're exhausted or annoyed as he calls you to invest the love of Christ in others. Think about this as it relates to people that don't know Christ. How are you doing loving people and investing in people that do not know Jesus as their Savior? Who are the people that God is giving you the grace and the mercy and the love to share him with who may not at first be very interested in hearing about Christ? Right now in my life, Every single day, I pray for five people in my life who do not know Jesus. And what's happened is, as I've prayed for these people over months, miraculously, God has one by one brought these people into my life to be, for me to be closer with them, for me to share Christ with them. And the only way we pray for these people and invest in these people over the long haul is not by tapping into our ability not by tapping into our affinity or uh, connection with these people. It's not by even tapping into our feeling sorry for them or, or worried about their eternal destiny. Those things will get you down the road a little bit, but the only thing that sustainably moves me to share the, the message of the gospel with people who need it is the source of life and love I find in Jesus. 
Jesus Christ doesn't just transform your future. He also empowers your present to share him with the world. The second scene of the story, we see Jesus and Peter really spending some quality time together. Once breakfast is over, Jesus and Peter begin to walk down the shore of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. As Jesus and Peter walk, there's a moment when Jesus kind of stops and looks at Peter and he says, Peter, I've got a question for you. Do you love me? Peter kind of stops and he says, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. Jesus gives him a command. He says, feed my sheep. They walk a little further down the shore of Galilee and Jesus looks again at Peter and he says, Peter, I got to know something. Do you love me? Peter looks at Jesus and says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And upon that answer, Jesus says, tend my sheep. They walk a little further. And then a third time, Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? And the Bible records that at this point, Peter's sad because it's almost like Jesus doesn't believe him. He says, Lord, you know everything. You know my heart. You know that I love you. And then Jesus says, feed my lambs again. After Jesus tells Peter that, he predicts Peter's death. He says, Peter, you know how you're young? You kind of go wherever you want. But when you're older, people lead you around. John tells us that Peter, John, uh, Jesus was predicting that Peter was going to be led to die in a way that was going to glorify God. Christian tradition, the history of the church, tells us that Peter was crucified upside down because he did not want to be killed in the same way Jesus was. We don't know for sure if that's true. The point is this. Jesus is saying, you're going to die in a specific way that's going to bring me glory. About that time, as Jesus and Peter are still talking, Peter looks over his shoulder and he notices John, the apostle John, doing something, the one who's writing this account. And he says, hey, hey Jesus, what about this guy? What, what's going to happen to him? And Jesus ends the gospel of John with a gentle rebuke. He says, don't worry about what I'm going to do with this guy. Peter, you follow me. And that's how the Gospel of John basically ends, is with that gentle rebuke. Now here's the question. What is John trying to tell us with this final account? This is the last thing he's telling us. What is he trying to communicate? Here's what I believe John's trying to tell us. John is trying to show us that Jesus is restoring Peter to his unique calling. Jesus is taking the time to press into Peter's life and restore him to what he's made him to do in the first place. Someone remind me, how many times did Peter deny Christ? Somebody tell me. Three times. Peter denied Christ three times. How many times does Jesus ask Peter if he loves him? Jesus doesn't do anything randomly. Jesus is trying to help Peter reaffirm his love. But then after Peter reaffirms his love for Jesus, what does Jesus do? He says, you get to work doing what I've made you to do, which is tending the sheep, tending my people. One of the great things to remember about Peter is that while he made some mistakes, if you read the book of Acts, that's exactly what happens. Peter stands up and boldly proclaims the gospel and thousands of people 
come to Christ. When Peter tries to compare himself to John, he says, don't worry about John. You've got a unique calling that I'm restoring you to. You do that. You follow me. Don't worry about what somebody else is doing. Don't compare yourself to others. And here's the point for you and me. I believe what John is trying to show us is something not about Peter, but he's really trying to show us something about Jesus. And here's what I think he's showing us. Jesus transforms our past so that we can embrace our calling in the present. I believe what John is revealing about Jesus is that he's not just a savior that's interested in securing my future. He's not even just a savior that's interested in empowering my present. Jesus is also a savior that's concerned with redeeming the mistakes and the brokenness and the hurt of my past. Here's what I know. I know that because sin is in this world, our past is filled with hurt and brokenness and pain. Some of the hurt and brokenness we feel from our past comes from our own sin, our own poor decisions that we've made that have resulted in some consequences that have shaped us and hurt us. But I also know that our, the reason we have brokenness and pain in our past is because there's also sin that's been done to us. There's sin that others have committed that have impacted us. Some of you have, have dealt with the pain of, of being in a family structure that hurt you or decisions that your parents made that, that shaped you as a child. Talk to someone after the first service that was relaying abuse that she had experienced that had shaped her and marked her. And what this passage reveals about Jesus is that Jesus has a plan to take all of this stuff from our past and redeem it and restore it for his glory and for our good. One of my wife's favorite shows on television focus on this couple named Chip and Joanna Gaines. How many of you know who I'm talking about? Oh my goodness, most of you do. Uh, they have a show on TV called Fixer Upper. In fact, we, we are such fans of this show that last year when we were in Texas, we went down to their headquarters in Waco. And I walked in the room uh, and I grabbed my wallet because my wife was seeing all of these really great things and decor and all this exciting stuff. But it was a great experience. I had a good time. If you're not familiar with the show, here's how it goes. They have a business where they identify old or kind of rundown homes that a couple or a family will purchase. And they, over the course of 30 minutes or an hour? An hour. Uh, it's the same thing every time, right? It, over an hour, they step in, they gut the home, they redo it, and they fix it up to where it's incredibly beautiful, right? This incredibly uh, majestic, beautiful homes. And there's that moment, right, if you've watched the show where they have the way the home used to look and then they wheel the picture back and there's the new home and the couple's screaming and shouting and laughing and, and then the husband's crying because he's realizing what it's going to cost. And uh, uh, there's a whole, a whole number of things happening in the show. But I watched that and I thought, you know, that's exactly what we're seeing with Jesus. Jesus, when we trust him, when we turn from our sin and trust him, he steps into the brokenness of our lives. 
And He doesn't just secure our future or just help us out with some of our problems in the present. Jesus' grace and His mercy begins to provide healing and restoration and fixing up of our past in such a way that we become more effective for His kingdom in the present. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to understand what Jesus offers you. What Jesus offers you is forgiveness of your past, of your present, and even the stuff you haven't done yet. That's how deep and rich His mercy and grace really is. Jesus is a a Savior of our sins, but He's also a Redeemer. Jesus redeems us from the painful sins of our past. Now here's the question I want to close with, and with this we'll be done. How does Jesus do that? Jesus here physically began to talk to Peter, began to press into his life, began to minister to him directly. How does Jesus do this now? Here's the answer. Jesus gives us his church. The church relationships with other believers is, in a sense, one of the ways Jesus provides mercy and healing over our past. Let me explain how that happens. The book of James tells us that when we confess our sins to one another, there's healing that happens in our lives. In other words, that when I bring my brokenness and hurt and pain out of the darkness and into the light of conversation and confession with other people, I begin to experience healing. And let me be clear. I'm not talking about bringing your junk from the past and your hurt and your pain and your heartache just to some random person who's going to empathize with you and complain with you about what's happened. I'm talking about bringing your hurt and your pain out of darkness into the light of fellowship with another person who's experienced the grace and mercy of Jesus. Christian fellowship, community with other believers, is in part the way that God provides healing in our lives. Because when I bring my hurt and my brokenness of my past into the light of fellowship with other Christians, and I experience their love and their kindness and their mercy... Here's how healing happens. I begin to experience God's healing in an experiential way. Things that I've read about, things that I've heard about, when I receive the forgiveness and the kindness and the love and the grace of another person who tells me they love me in spite of what's happened, who prays for me, who encourages me, I'm experiencing Christ through His church. And when I bring my hurt and my brokenness into the light of God's grace, it allows me to begin to deal with the layers that are underneath it. One of the reasons I want to mention this to you is because this is one of the reasons why I think counseling is so important. There's a stigma that comes with counseling, isn't it? Well, if you go to counseling... There must be something wrong with you. You're really messed up. You've got problems. But here's what I want you to know counseling is designed to do. Christian biblical counseling is designed to help you, to coach you, work through the layers underneath some of this hurt that you have that's leading you to still struggle and deal with these things in the present. 
I believe some of the steps from this message that some of you should take is some of you, yes, should confess some of your sin and your hurt and your pain to another member of this church and another member of this body. Some of you might want to pull me or Michael or Ron or some of our leaders aside and share with us what you're dealing with, what you're struggling with. What I want you to know is the Savior that John presents as his gospel closes is not someone that's just concerned with your future. It's not just someone that's concerned with your present. It's also someone who has a plan to heal and redeem and restore you from your past. And just like those homes in that TV show that are incredibly beautiful and just majestic in how they look and the couples are wowed by them, that's the kind of trophy of grace God can turn you into. God's grace and his mercy doesn't just secure your future, doesn't just empower your present, it also heals you from your past. My prayer for us this morning as we close is simply this, is that we would not marvel at anything other than Jesus, a Savior who loves us like this. Would you pray with me, church?